welcome to the Ellis Whitten Employment Law Podcast. My name is James Tam and I'm Director of Legal Services here at Ellis Whitten. During each podcast, I'll be joined by two of my colleagues to discuss the latest employment law news and issues that may impact your business or that you may find interesting. This time, I'm joined by Angela Carter, one of our heads of team. Hi, Angela. Hi, James. How are you? Yeah, good, thank you. Good, good, good. And also Kim Clark, who's head of our litigation team. Morning, Kim. Hi, James. You okay? Yeah, good, thanks. Excellent. Um, last time on the podcast, we had a case law update, but it's been a bit quieter this time of year. I think a lot of judges are on holiday. Um, so this time, we're going to concentrate on one particular topic um, that's becoming more commonplace and quite tricky to deal with. Um, and that's disability discrimination, particularly Section 15 of the Equality Act discrimination arising from a disability. So just to explain a bit about that, um, that is where A treats B unfavourably because of something arising in consequence of B's disability. No comparison with the treatment of others is required um, and as with direct disability discrimination, the employer will only be liable for this if it knows or ought to have known of the worker's disability. So to try and put that in context, a bit of a common example would be where an employer dismisses an employee not because they are disabled, because of a long-term absence that they have as a result of the disability. Um, as with indirect discrimination, it's possible to defeat a claim of Section 15 discrimination by showing that the treatment was objectively justified, um, which means a proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim. So, to break down that defence, that objective justification, into two parts, um, First of all, Ange, can you explain to me what we mean by illegitimate aim? Yeah, absolutely. Well, I can try. <laughs> so, uh, proportionate means of achieving a legitimate aim, we're actually going to look at the legitimate aim piece first because that's the first thing that's going to have to be established in identifying the potential defence. Unhelpfully, as with many of these things, there is no definition in the legislation as to what is a legitimate aim. We do, however, have some guidance that's been issued by the Equality and Human Rights Commission in their Employment Code, which gives us a steer as to what a legitimate aim may amount to. So the concept of legitimate aim is a European law concept, but highly unlikely to change um, as a result of current Brexit time. So I think we are where we are with this moving forwards. The legitimate aim must be in itself legal and it must represent a real objective consideration. So it's quite a woolly concept, but what we do know is that it must be appropriate to achieving that aim. Broadly speaking, it's been identified that legitimate aims can fall into two categories. So you would be looking in the first instance at aims in relation to protecting health and safety um, within the workplace. Similarly, matters such as safeguarding within the workplace if you're looking into regulated environments protection of the public, those would be one head of legitimate aim. The second category is a bit more sort of nebulous when you're looking at business considerations. So a legitimate aim in this context could be general business considerations. Interestingly, as with previous concepts in indirect discrimination, it has been held that costs per se, so merely saving costs in itself, will not amount to a legitimate aim. But costs plus something additional, so costs plus a business consideration and or a health and safety consideration may amount to. And as we talk through some of the cases, I think we'll be able to draw out 
some more specific examples within the context of the case law as to what has been held to amount to a legitimate aim, which should hopefully give us a bit more context. Thank you very much. Okay. Easy. Yeah. Easy. So, second part of the test then, we'll have to delve with legitimate aim, is proportionality. So, Kim, what do we mean by proportionality? Uh, well, again, this is a nebulous concept, thanks for the word, Ange. Um, <laughs> it basically means that an employer is going to have to consider what discriminatory impact uh, something is going to have on an employee or group with a protected characteristic. And, crucially, when balanced against your legitimate aim, is it proportionate? Now, a big part of answering that question is considering whether there is a less discriminatory way of achieving your goal. Is there something less discriminatory that you could do that has the same effect or achieves the same objectives? If there is, then what you're proposing to do will probably not be proportionate. The question then is how do you go about trying to balance the discriminatory effect on an individual or group against your legitimate aim? Now this is going to require some thought for each of the circumstances or set of facts that you might face. Each case is different, but there's a couple of things that need to be borne in mind. Firstly, the more severe the effect is on the individual or the group, the harder it's probably going to be to show that the treatment or policy or action that you're trying to implement is proportionate. Secondly, and this is very important, what else could you do to achieve that same effect? For example, um, in the example you referred to earlier, when we were talking about um, taking action in relation to absence management policies or procedures for absences that might arise from a disability or a condition that could be a disability, if your legitimate aim is to encourage consistent attendance for continuity purposes, for service provision uh, and things like that, then if you're considering taking taking formal action for something connected to or arising from the disability, can you downgrade a possible sanction from a dismissal to, say, a warning? Um, because that's going to have the same effect and the, uh, it's going to help you achieve the same objective and uh, it has a less discriminate, discriminatory effect because it is less severe on the employee or the group. Uh, thirdly, for... For potential Section 15 claims, where we're talking about uh, something that arises from the disability, another thing to think about is what, if any, reasonable adjustments have been made or could be made before you take that action. If you're not thinking about those things, or if you don't turn your mind to that important consideration, not only is that a separate claim under the Equality Act, but um, a, a reasonable adjustment would probably be a less discriminatory way of dealing with whatever situation you're facing. However, if you can be satisfied that you've made all of the adjustments that are possible, or that there's none to make at all, it's possible to say that your actions are proportionate, but that's by no means automatic. It is going to come down very much to uh, how, uh, how a judge, ultimately, at the end of a tribunal case, considers... Uh, your actions to be in the context of all of the facts of the situation you're dealing with. So, again, no particularly easy answer to that, just a lot of considerations and thought that needs to go into something before you take any action. Thanks, Kim. Um, so, to use the word of this podcast, nebulous, <laughs> um, to try and get away from those nebulous issues and characteristics, 
we're going to cover three cases from the past couple of years which sort of highlight these particular problems in different contexts. Um, we're going to talk about one case where the Section 15 discrimination occurred in relation to conduct issues, one where it again arose in relation to performance issues, and one, which is probably the most common, is where Section 15 has to be balanced against someone with a poor sickness absence record. So, first of all, Kim, you're going to talk us through the case of City of York and Grosset, which was a misconduct case which had impact in relation to Section 15. Uh, yes, thanks James. Uh, this was a case from May 2018. It got quite a bit of news and media attention because of the facts of the case and because of the amount of the compensation that was awarded to the claimant being north of £600,000. It was a court of appeal decision. I'll briefly cover the facts and then what each of the courts uh, or the tribunals that heard it have decided. So the claimant was a teacher and he suffered from cystic fibrosis. Uh, Mr Grosset had a, an excessive workload, which was a finding of fact that was made by the tribunal, and that this had caused or led to him suffering with stress. He became ill, which exacerbated cystic fibrosis. The misconduct for which formal action was taken uh, was that Mr Grosset showed uh, an 18 rated film. It was uh, the Halloween uh, the Halloween film and he showed this to a group of students 15 and 16 year old vulnerable children essentially um, and he hadn't got in advance the school's permission uh, or approval nor had he got any uh, parental consent the school found out about this uh, were not happy he was suspended and they initiated formal disciplinary action against him uh, the school did not accept his explanation that his actions were the result of an error of judgment that was brought on by the stress. Uh, they dismissed him for gross misconduct and it culminated in a tribunal claim. Now in the first instance, the employment tribunal initially held that there was a fair dismissal, focusing on the test for unfair dismissal that uh, the judge has to look at the range of reasonable responses open to an employer. Uh, and they found that the dismissal was fair because that sanction fell within that very broad range of reasonable responses. However, they upheld the claim for discrimination arising from a disability. They found that, or that the decision was, that there was medical evidence available at the time of the tribunal hearing, which did demonstrate that there was a link between Mr Gross's actions and his disability. This was even though the medical evidence at the time of the dismissal was not so conclusive. The employer appealed to the tribunal and the EAT heard this case and uh, the, the appeal was dismissed and the EAT said that the tribunal was right and entitled to find that the disability had caused or resulted in the misconduct for which he'd been dismissed and that was enough to be something for the purposes of section 15 um, and that the council had treated him unfairly by dismissing him because of that something. The employer appealed again to the court of appeal and this was the case that got all the headlines. The key points of this judgment were that the court said that it is a legitimate aim to safeguard the vulnerable students, uh, just like Andrew was describing earlier. However, they found that the school should have made a number of adjustments to his work before this even happened. Had those adjustments been made, it was highly likely this whole thing would never have happened, and as he had a clean disciplinary record, giving him a final written warning, for example, would have achieved the aim of safeguarding the children, but not been as 
uh, severe in its effect, i.e. it was um, more proportionate. Dismissal was not proportionate in those circumstances, so the claimant's claim succeeded. Now, there were a couple of red flags in this decision for employers. Firstly, there was no medical evidence at the time of the dismissal. Um, now, in a lot of disability cases, we, uh, we try to argue that the respondent perhaps didn't have knowledge, but for the purposes of a Section 15 claim, that's not relevant. An employer can still be liable under Section 15, even if there's no knowledge. So, what can employers do? Well, if there's any doubt about whether or not misconduct or the actions of an employee are a consequence of a disability, getting me medical evidence is probably a very good idea. If we can do everything we can to establish whether or not there's a causal link, it's going to decrease and minimise the chances of doing something that's in breach of Section 15. It puts us in the best place uh, to be able to defend a tribunal claim. And uh, as Head of Litigation, that's what I primarily care about for, for cases that come across my desk. Um, in this case, though, which I mean, should be noted, the employer did that, but still lost the claim. So sometimes it's looking like there's going to be a lot of uncertainty. Sometimes an employer might, an employer, sorry, sometimes an employer might have to decide whether, um, whether, whether or not to give an employee the benefit of the doubt that the conduct was a consequence of the disability, i.e. take a very cautious approach, or are they going to be more gung-ho about it and take the risk of there being a successful tribunal claim. Now, the level of compensation awarded in this case is a reminder that damages for discrimination compensation are not capped or limited, and there can be an award for financial losses as well as injury to feelings. So the stakes can be very, very high, uh, and awards very, very substantial if you get it wrong, which makes it more important to do everything you can correctly. Absolutely. <coughs> Thanks, Kim. Um, Ange, mm. you're going to talk about Section 15 in the context of performance management. Yeah, so I'm going to talk about the Balde versus Churches Housing Association of Dudley and District Limited, which is a 2009 EAT case. And it's a case that we spoke about previously, but the context that we're going to look at it as at, on this occasion is a slightly different approach. Again, as, as Kim's Grosset case, it was a case that has certainly in legal circles, you know, hit the headlines. It's hit the headlines largely in relation to one particular point, but there are actually a number of other points that arise from it that, from our perspective in terms of advising our clients, in terms of looking at this whole sort of Section 15 piece in, in the round, are going to be relevant. Um, so in terms of the facts of the case, just briefly talking about the facts of the case, Mrs. Balder Baldhay was a housing support worker, um, providing housing support services to vulnerable adults in the context of the Church's Housing Association a charitable organisation. She ended up having her probation failed at the end of her six-month probationary period due to concerns over her performance and I think it's fair to say sort of behaviours as well as performance per se. So there were five specific points upon which her probation was failed. So the respondent went through a full sort of probation review process, full outcome given, um, setting out the points of concern. So we had in the mix there a complaint from a service user about the tone of a text message that Mrs. Bolday had sent to the service user. An allegation in relation to breach of professional boundaries in that she had lent money to a service user. Uh, a failure to maintain confidentiality in relation to service user information, 
failure to consult adequately with senior staff in relation to issues of concern and a broader sort of fifth point in relation to her communication style with colleagues and managers. So five seemingly on the face of it pretty serious concerns with somebody working in her position who is only at that point in time six months into their employment and a probationary review point. So they go through the probationary review process with her she makes no reference to any underlying medical conditions, any disabilities, and they are not, employer is not aware of any none have been declared um, or any sort of suggestions or anything alluded to in that respect. So at the point of dismissal, point of failed probation, the employer has no knowledge of disability. They offer an appeal process, um, even on a, a probationary dismissal, which wouldn't be the case in all situations for a short service employee, but this particular employer does. And at the appeal, she refers to suffering from depression and indicates that this causes her to have lapses of judgment. So connected to her depression, that she may have judgment lapses, which she then makes a causal connection to say attributes to at least some particularly the communication style point that they've raised as an allegation. The employer in this case does nothing at the point of appeal to investigate the disability contention and the potential causal links any further. They just take the view that because it's never been mentioned previously and wasn't mentioned at dismissal, that they're going to plough ahead and uphold that decision to fail probation. Mrs. Baldhay brought a Section 15 disability discrimination claim on the back of that decision and the subsequent decision at appeal to uphold um, the decision to dismiss. Her argument being that certainly in respect to the communication style point that as a result of her depression that was connected to her, her behaviours in that respect were attributable or potentially attributable to her disability. Originally, EAT accepted in their decision, accepted that she had a disability in the context of the depression, but they rejected her claim for the Section 15 arising from on four grounds, which she subsequently appealed to the EAT, which is where the decision that then hit the headlines sort of arises predominantly from. So just talking through her four grounds of appeal, um, the findings at the tribunal and the subsequent decisions which the EAT made in relation to each of those findings. I think there are a number of quite important points and to Kim's point, some flags from our perspective in terms of advising our clients that we should be drawing from those. Not least because, as I said earlier, the headline talks purely, really, about one point, but there are three other points that I think are salient and important to bring from it too. So the first point on which she appealed was that the original tribunal concluded that the employer employer had no actual or constructive knowledge of disability, of disability at the point of dismissal because turning back to the facts at the point that they fail her probation she hadn't mentioned it they had no indication of any disability. The Employment Appeals Tribunal in respect to that point concluded that the appeal process is an integral part of the dismissal. So you need to look at it all in the round. And therefore the fact she brings that to the table and cites her depression and the potential connection with her behaviours that are being scrutinised and under discussion at the point of appeal means that she could found a Section 15 discrimination claim on that basis. 
and looking at it sort of on reflection, it probably makes sense. The appeal process is directly connected to the dismissal process, so you can see the logic of looking at it in the round. The employer in this case just did nothing with it when it was cited at appeal. And that's the one that it's really hit the headlines on the basis of. But actually, there are three further points which I think are interesting to take from it too. The second point that the tribunal looked at and concluded that there was no evidence that Ms. Bold, Mrs. Boldhay's blunt communication style was, commun- was connected rather to her disability, so to her depression. So to their view, um, no or insufficient evidence had been presented to support that connection, that causal link. The EAT rejected this, and it's an interesting point in that they rejected it saying that there was evidence, albeit that evidence came from Mrs. Balderhay only. So they effectively took her word and said that that is sufficient evidence to say, uh, for her to say, I see this causal connection here. So that's quite an interesting point from an advice perspective and from talking to clients about it because there will often be a case that they will say, do do we need to look into this further? Do we need medical evidence? Actually, in this particular case, the claimant's evidence itself was held to be sufficient. Third point which was looked at um, was the fact that when we talked earlier about the, there are five reasons cited as for her failed probation in terms of her conducts and behaviours which were deemed by the employer to be unacceptable and grounds to fail that probationary period. So the EAT originally concluded that there were four other reasons for her dismissal besides her communication style which could have led the respondent to dismiss her. So the points in relation to things like the lending service user money, she hadn't really made that causal connection with her depression so actually there were four other grounds for a short service employee that we may, that the respondent should have been able to dismiss on the basis of. So the EAT concluded. The EAT rejected this on the basis that the something arising out of the disability, in this case the communication style she attributes to arising from the depression, only need to have been a material influence or have had a material influence on the, dis- the decision, on the negative dis- decision, in this case dismissal. They do not need to be the sole or principal reason for the unfavourable treatment. So actually, in the EATs on these, irrespective of the fact that there were, that four out of the five reasons for failing her probation may not have been in any way connected to her disability, is by the by, because one of them was or potentially was and may have had a material influence on the decision of the employer, that was enough to potentially found the Section 15 claim. The fourth last point that was considered um, by the EAT, which brings us back to the whole sort of point that Kim and I have just been sort of talking about in the context of objective justification and the proportion between means of achieving a legitimate aim, was that even if the Section 15 claim could be bought, we're obviously talking here about how you could defend that. The EAT were of the view that the dismissal was was potentially justified on the basis of the legitimate aim of maintaining standards required of individuals working with vulnerable people and to maintain a workforce where people can work in a highly pressured environment. That seems entirely logical given the role that she was performing as a support worker with vulnerable adults. EAT looked at that point and said that yeah we agree that's a legitimate aim 
So maintaining standards of work those working with vulnerable adults would be a legitimate aim. However, what the respondent had failed to do is engage at all with her disability or to consider the point that Kim was talking on earlier about proportionality. They'd taken no steps to attempt to balance, balance the prejudice to Mrs Balday of losing her job for something arising out of her disability against their needs, against their legitimate aim to protect those vulnerable adults. They just hadn't applied their minds to it. And I think that's the real lesson from this case in terms of advising clients, that actually there's an abject failure to even think about her disability, the consequences of it, whether it was then what the legitimate aim was then in terms of moving to failing her probation, whether there was an alternative more proportionate, less discriminatory means to achieve that. So, for example, the looking at the Grosset case that Kim's talked about, you know, could we have just given her a warning? Could we have trained her, supported her in trying to improve her communication style? It just wasn't considered. So they were kind of destined for failure or largely destined for failure by ignoring the point at the point it's raised at appeal, which I think is the big lesson from this case to my mind. Okay, thanks Ange. And finally then, I'm just going to talk about um, a case called DL Insurance Services and O'Connor, 2017 case by the Employment Appeal Tribunal. Um, And this relates to sickness, absence and disability. So Mrs O'Connor had an unspecified disability, which had led to quite high levels of absence uh, for quite a few years. Now, DL had tried to be quite accommodating about that. Um, They had absence management policies with trigger points in, and effectively what they'd done is sort of ignored a lot of those trigger points and allowed her to cut her more slack in terms of attendance records. So right in the ballpark, really, the sort of thing we would probably advise our clients to do in these situations. However, it got to the point in 2016 where Mrs O'Connor had 60 days absence in 12 months. And effectively at that point, DL said, well, enough is enough. Um, and the issue there a warning um, for having poor attendance record. Mrs O'Connor then claimed discrimination arising from disability under Section 15. Um, and the case turned on the issue of objective justification. Now, before the EAT, DLS argued that um, their legitimate aim was to try and improve Mrs O'Connor's attendance record. Um, but the EAT agreed with the Employment Tribunal and said that a warning was not a proportionate means of achieving that aim because DL had been unable to explain how a warning would assist them in that particular aim. Um, they couldn't provide any evidence at all to show that issuing a warning would help her improve her attendance and obviously the big problem was that these were genuine attendances. So the EAT effectively took the view that well what's the point? You know, if you're gonna issue a warning for someone who has genuine attendance problems and a disability, you're never gonna get them to improve their attendance records simply by issuing that warning. They can't help being off in effect. Um I think DL weren't helped by the fact that there were some gaps in its processes. In particular they hadn't failed they'd failed to refer to occupational health um, so there was a bit of an evidence gap, if you like, in relation to the issue of justification. But I think, again, it's, it's another example of a case where I'm sure a lot of employers are sat there thinking, blimey, once someone raises the issue of, of disability in the context of sickness, absence or misconduct, um, and link that to whatever they've been accused of, then there's very little room for manoeuvre. But I think the key point to take away is that that isn't the case. 
Um, it does mean that employers are going to have to consider these situations more carefully, maybe jump through a few more hoops. Um, but in each of the three cases we've discussed, the employer kind of dismisses out of hand the chance of these disabilities having any impact on what the issues are. Um, and I think that's the big warning sign, really. You can't just do that. You have to properly consider the issue of objective justification and take advice on it as well. So I think it would probably help to work through a couple of examples just on this to try and highlight those particular points. Okay, so let's imagine this situation. You've got an employee called Janine who's worked in a bank for the last 12 years and suffers with type 2 diabetes. Her condition is adversely affected by stress, poor upkeep of a suitable diet and irregular breaks. She's had the condition since 2017 but didn't tell anyone in the bank right away. So the closure of several other branches has increased footfall in Janine's branch, which coupled with staffing issues meant she often did not have time to take breaks or keep her diabetes under control. She said that when she was not controlling her diabetes, she felt shaky, weak, hungry, lethargic and confused, which affected her ability to concentrate at work. She has also previously been referred to a mental health clinic because of work-related stress which the company has been made aware of. So last month, a customer was inadvertently locked in the branch for three hours after Janine had to leave work quickly for an emergency appointment. The bank then investigate this and reveal a number of other security concerns. These include CCTV footage showing that on other occasions, Janine has left the keys unattended, the keys of the bank that is, and had let a customer into the branch after closing time while leaving the keys in the door. She'd also failed to check all the rooms to ensure no customers or packages had been left inside. So, imagine we're advising the bank. The bank contacts us and explains that particular situation to us. Obviously has some concerns over Janine's conduct and wants to go down the route of a disciplinary hearing. So, first question, fairly obvious question. Are there any issues with the client going straight to discipline here in, in that particular case? And if so, what may they be? I think you've got an initial issue from a general disciplinary perspective in that you need to investigate. Of course. I think that investigation is then potentially going to bear out other considerations if it is the case that Janine is making that connection from a potential sex in 15 perspective with her medical condition and the impacts of that on the potential behaviours you're looking to discipline in relation to. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think we can probably assume that she will make that connection. So she's saying, you know, obviously, I've got this condition, it makes me confused, affects my concentration, so of course I'm going to leave the keys in the door. Of course I'm going to let people in after hours. I just can't help myself. I think this fits sort of uh, sort of well with the facts of the Grosset case because in that case in an utter investigation stage the employee did make a connection he said well the thing that I'm being accused of is as a result of um, my disability and, and in that in that case as here um, what, we, what we're imagining Janine is going to say is well I possibly did all of these things but I did that because I'm stressed which exacerbates my diabetes and there's a couple of steps removed there uh, you know that it's not a, a natural direct consequence it's yeah. it's two steps removed if you like yeah um, and I think I think my my point of view at that point is 
it's the same issue with Balde that, that you raised earlier, Ange. From a tribunal evidential point of view, they accepted Miss Balde's mm. own personal evidence, um, which I imagine was a witness statement. So they accepted her word for it. Now, at that point, is there a duty, do we think, on the employer to get more information, or do we just rely on what the employee is saying? Because I can imagine a lot of employers are going to think, well, hang on, this is a, an employee who's taking a convenient yeah. route here. Yeah. How much scrutiny do we give to that explanation. And from the employer's perspective, on those bald facts, it looks pretty, it's pretty serious stuff. This is a bank unsecured. So you can see why they're going to want to be ploughing on based on those facts alone, and yeah. understandably. But I think the, the lesson from all these cases is, it, it, yes, you can, but you might run a risk if you do. Um, and there potentially are other steps you need to consider. I mean, I suppose that's that's the thing, isn't it? So we're, we're assuming that this is going to be a disability discrimination case, Section 15 case, but the first stage is always, is the employee actually disabled? Which is obviously where the medical evidence comes in. Mm. But I do wonder sometimes, actually, whether that medical evidence takes you much further forward. Because the two traditional routes are GP report, which is usually less expensive but can take a while, and frankly, in a lot of cases, GPs tend to support the employees in whatever approach they're, they're going to take, or occupational health, which can be more expensive. But in both situations, you know, I think it's probably likely that they're going to end up... Conf- I mean, certainly, you know, the diabetes yeah. is probably going to be a disability, um, if it affects us to the extent that she says it does there. Um, the stress maybe as well, but I, I just think sometimes with medical evidence, you kind of are just delaying the inevitable. The evidence is probably going to support the employee's position anyway, mm. so you're still left with a difficult call to make. But you're probably just you're probably three, four, five weeks further down the line, all the time whether they're probably suspended on on full pay. And I think yeah, to your point, if it, if it is just going to confirm or almost certainly just going to confirm the the disability and the potential causation that she's bringing, then actually. Is it better just to turn your mind earlier to the issue of objective justification because you may you may be okay to proceed if you consider that in its entirety without necessarily having gone through the step of confirming what the employee is telling you in relation to the disability? I think so. It's it's probably something it's it's a it's a it's a battle you're probably gonna to have to fight anyway. Mm. So you may as well start on the front foot and, and really apply your mind to those issues straight away. So if, if we say for argument's sake, um, in this case, let's say we do get a medical report and it comes back and says that um, diabetes and the stress are both um, disabilities as far as um, the doctors are concerned, we're then squarely in the issue of objective justification. So in relation to that, and the first limb of that test, if you like, the, the legitimate aim, what are we gonna say our legitimate aim or aims are in this particular situation? I think we can. I think we can probably all agree that protecting the security of the premises, protecting the bank's yeah. assets, protecting uh, people being locked in. Yeah, for three <laughs> hours. Those those are the kind of things that I think probably you're, you're not going to be facing an uphill struggle to mm. convince a tribunal are legitimate. Um, yeah. They they seem very um, very sensible things that you would want any business to do. Yeah, totally agree. Yeah, I, I agree. I mean, I think, I think actually in these cases, your legitimate aim is usually the easy thing to establish. Mm-hmm. It's it's all about proportionality. So we may as well discuss proportionality as well. So we've we're all agreed that you know protecting the bank's premises, 
protecting, you know, security, a bit of health and safety thrown in there maybe as well. Um, certainly the customer's been locked, locked in. locked in. No, no exit. <laughs> no toilet facility. Um, so they're all legitimate aims. So it, proportionality then, you know, are, are we satisfied? Because I think we can all assume that in this situation, the employer's probably going to want to dismiss yeah. the employee. So do we think that dismissal would be proportionate in support of those legitimate aims? I'm going to say no. Okay. And the reason I'm going to say no is because I think that there are other things that the employer could do. Um, and in particular, when I was talking about the Grosset case, I talked about reasonable adjustments. If we go back to what we were, what part of the scenario was, um, there were staffing issues, which means that she often didn't have time to take breaks to keep her diabetes under control. Um, which I, I would infer from that meant that she wasn't able to control uh, blood sugar or um, her dietary requirements. Um, she said that when she was not controlling diabetes, she felt shaky, weak, hungry, lethargic and confused. Now, to me, there, that is something that the employer should be looking at making reasonable adjustments for. We could be considering things like making sure she takes her breaks, uh, making sure she's perhaps not working on her own. Uh, putting another person on with her, making sure she's not the only person on opening up or locking. moving her branch, if there's a branch where there's more staffing that enables her to take a break. Changing her working hours, maybe, to allow her to do that. I think that there's much more that they could do at that stage to investigate that with Or at least and think about doing think isn't about it, about applying the money to. Absolutely, and if they can't do any of those mm. things for any reason, then that might be okay, but we need to apply our mind to that and actually consider any all of those things before we can, I think, leap to... Um, leaps taking formal disciplinary action that could lead to a dismissal. I mean, I agree. I think, again, if you look at some of the cases we've talked about, there is usually a condition there that has gone, let's say, unaddressed by the employer, which has kind of made the situation worse and things have kind of snowballed. Certainly, Grosset will be one where that seems to have happened. So I think another good tip and sort of warning sign is, you know, don't ignore these, these symptoms. Don't let these things fester because if something does break, then there's a fair chance that you, the thing is going to be pointed back at you as the employer for not addressing these in the first place. I suppose the other issue with proportionality, which I think is an interesting one, is in some of these cases, the tribunals seem to, concede, seem to, seem to arrive at the conclusion that giving someone a warning is almost just as good as, as dismissing them. So obviously with this, in this situation, the, the aim is that the, the security of the bank is maintained and they think that can be achieved by giving them a warning. I'm not so sure. Mm. Who's to say it's not going to happen again? The only way you can rule it out completely is if that person isn't employed anymore. Fully take on board where you're coming from, Kim, in terms of in this particular situation, it might not be the right thing to do. But I do think that overall there's a bit of, you know, saying that a, the warning achieves the same thing as a dismissal. It's, it's very speculative, isn't it? I it's an so. absolute leap to say that, particularly in the Grosset one, that it would, giving that final written warning, would have achieved because actually... If he's not acting rationally as a result of his stress, his conditions, then why is a piece of paper saying don't do it again? Yeah, I think it's it's certainly a leap. Uh, yeah, which I, is a bit concerning. Absolutely, but we're kind of you know these are the decisions that we're yeah, seeing, so yeah, yeah. we've got we've got to we've got to assume that that's going to be the situation. Absolutely. I mean, I do wonder sometimes with some, then maybe maybe a deterrent effect is your, is your legitimate aim. You know, you don't want people to think that they can get away with leaving the keys in the door or you know stealing or whatever it may be. Um, so maybe that's, maybe the legitimate aim needs to look at more carefully in some of these cases. And I think that that might be right if your legitimate aim is deterrence. Yeah. If your legitimate aim is making sure that the bank is never left unsecure, 
then making sure Janine's never left by herself for locking up time is yeah. going to achieve the same. Uh, yeah. Taking the keys off her, giving somebody else that yeah, responsibility. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So it, it, that goes then back to what you're trying to do in the first place. Fine and, that, and does it address it? Yeah. 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 yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Okay, thanks for that both. Um, just to round things off then, I think it would be useful to just highlight some top tips for any employers out there dealing with these sorts of situations. I think the first thing I'd say is before implementing any measure, process, procedure, consider why it's needed. You know, what aim are you trying to achieve? And does what you are proposing help in achieving that particular aim? What I'd advise is really sitting down and perhaps taking taking some time to consider doing a risk assessment or an impact assessment. If you're trying to implement a new policy before you make any sort of decision, before you do anything, really stop and think about it. It's that time is going to be well spent because you, you're looking specifically to see if somebody or some group that are protected are going to be more affected than others and what could be done to mitigate the effects of that on them. Look at what you could do that has a less severe effect because that's going to be a very key factor in terms of defending it on the basis of proportionality. Yeah, and I think I, I wholly agree with Kim's point on that. So once you have done that, that risk assessment, that quality impact assessment, really sitting and thinking and reflecting on less discriminatory ways of achieving your aim um, and potentially documenting that so that you've got that thought process evidenced. Yeah, as a litigator, I love having a paper trail. Mm. I think as, as well, when dealing with workers with a disability, before taking any action in respect of misconduct, absence management performance, consider whether fifth, Section 15 applies. I think it's likely that the answer to that question is going to be yes, but it's still worth thinking about that in the first place. It's also worth thinking about what you're actually trying to do. What's your aim? What are you trying to achieve? Uh, for example, with the ex- uh, with Janine, are we trying to uh, have a deterrent effect or are we trying to protect the premises because what you could do or what action you could take in relation to each and what proportionate action you could take in relation to each is probably going to be different. And again, tying in from that and talking, you know, what we spoke about earlier, the reasonable adjustments point, actually look at that early doors and in respect of Janine, if you're looking at those reasonable adjustments, you may have been able to avoid this issue ever occurring in the first place if you'd have actively looked at that at the outset and looked at things like the change in hours and not having her locking up. Absolutely. And if reasonable adjustments have been put in place or there aren't any and things haven't improved, just consider whether there are any less discriminatory ways of achieving your stay today. Obviously, we've already discussed downgrading disciplinary sanction to take the disability into account um, or maybe disregarding some or all disability related absences if you're dealing with a sickness issue. Okay, that's all from us this time round. Hopefully you've found that interesting and informative. Um, So please join us next time when we'll have more for you. Thank you and goodbye.